Hello everyone, welcome back to Hardly Flowering. It's me, Catherine, and I don't exactly know what I'm going to say today, but the main topic will be an essay by Alexandra Solzhenitsyn, um, which I've been reading recently and which has really touched me and that I think would be a great thing for more people to read right now in the world. I guess the main thing is I've been having, what do you call it, talker's block, like writer's block, but for podcasters, I guess we need a better word for this. Um, but regardless, I've been finding it difficult just with the turmoil that I've been feeling and that's been going on in the world to express what I want to say and what I think needs to be said. So. The way I'm going to do that is by going through this essay by Alexandra Solzhenitsyn. The essay is called Live Not By Lies, and it's the last thing that he wrote right before his exile from the Soviet Union in, um, what was it, 1974? I'm bad with dates. Yeah, 1974. That's why I have to have these things written down for me. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to be going through the essay, and I'm going to be just looking at his words and kind of contextualizing that with what I've been feeling and stuff that's been going on around here. So yeah, let's just begin. I guess the main point, the main question that I'm asking is about human personhood, right? What does it mean to be a human person? What, how can we best flourish as human persons in the particular place in which we find ourselves today? Oh, hang on one second. I need another sip of coffee. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Oh, yeah. Also, I have the window open because it's a gorgeous day. So if you hear birds or something outside, I'm sorry, but the window was open. Okay, so back to what I was saying about human personhood. So this is obviously one of the central questions of philosophy, of literature. You know, this is something that everyone talks about or thinks about in one way or another, right? Every Everyone who operates in the world as a human person has some idea of what that means and some idea of what it means to be a good human person or at least a successful human person. And obviously everyone is having different ideas of this, which is why we see many people leading very different lives. But I'm going to be approaching this text with a you know, Catholic view of human personhood as I can best understand it and best articulate it. And I'm also going to be contextualizing it a little bit just based on my experiences recently. So let's get started. Um, the one thing I absolutely love about this essay, it, it's very short. So I've printed out a copy and I guess I can link to it. It's a PDF that I found online. I don't really know where it's from. Oh yeah, the Index on Censorship that was published in 2004. Um, it's, like a, it's like a journal. So there's like this weird um, art slash poem in the middle of it. I don't know, maybe I'll try and find a different copy to post for you guys. But it's very short. It's five pages, right? Not long at all. But the thing that I love about this essay is its sense of timelessness, right? So what Solzhenitsyn is doing here, he knows he's about to have to leave, you know, Russia, his home country, because of the things that he said against the government. It's a whole long story. I'm not going to get into his whole life. But his response is, in a sense, this essay. And so the, there's a paragraph at the beginning where he talks specifically 
about the situation in Russia, but the most of the rest of this essay is simply him discussing this question that I have, like how to be a human person, how to flourish as a human person when you perceive difficulties in the world around you, things that would prevent the expression of what you think you need to do to be a good human person, right? Whether that's art or religion or literature and how you can kind of take things into your own hands in that sense. So I would also like to say this is not a commentary on any event in particular. Okay, we're going to get to that later. For now, let's just go through the essay. So the first paragraph is pretty specific to his situation. But the second paragraph is where I really started to fall in love with this essay. So he says, A universal spiritual death has already touched us all, and physical death will soon flare up and consume us. Um, Then he continues, But as before, we still smile in a cowardly fashion and mumble with our tongues tied. What can we do to stop it? We haven't the strength. We have been so hopelessly dehumanized that for today's ration of food, we are willing to abandon all our principles, our souls, and the efforts of our predecessors, as well as the opportunities for our descendants. So I love the link he draws here between spiritual death, which he says comes first, and then physical death. Obviously, he's speaking in his particular context, but I do think that the phrase spiritual death is something that really resonates with me, at least, as something that, you know, we experience sort of if you believe in eternity, right? If you are aiming for something higher, you're going to perceive something lacking, right, in much of the modern culture of the world around you. And so that's what Solzhenitsyn here is saying comes first, Right. First, you have to stop caring about the principles, about ideas. You have to stop caring about souls and the concept of immortality. And then once once you stop caring about those things, the rest just sort of follows as a consequence. And so he's perceived that in his culture, in his society, this has happened, and he wants to address how to stop it. So he continues, he continues on the next paragraph detailing a bit more of the problem, right? So he says, we fear acts of civil courage. We are afraid to lag behind the herd and take just one step alone. So yeah, then he goes on just about how the sense of predeterminism, I guess, that he was facing in his society, which I've also felt is applicable to some of the conversations that I've had, you know, either like with colleagues or just with friends. We seem to feel powerless to flourish as human persons, right? Regardless of what's happening, whether that's the lockdown or whether that's, you know, the political turmoil in many parts of the world right now, um, we seem to feel that the large events over which we have no control are limit our ability to flourish as human persons. And so Solzhenitsyn's argument here is that's not true, right? It feels like that. It feels like You cannot escape your environment and social conditions, right? But he says we can do something about it. He says that we lie to... This is a kind of a... I'm paraphrasing slash quoting, right? He says, We lie to ourselves to preserve our peace of mind. It is not they who should be blamed, but ourselves. Right? So he's saying that ultimately our humanity is on our own hands, which is at once really scary to me because then you know, the responsibility is back on me, but it's also freeing and it's also liberating, especially 
when someone like Solzhenitsyn tells you that, right? He's been in the gulags. He's been, he's been in places that are far, far, far worse than anything I have ever experienced. And I really hope I never experience anything that horrible. But if he, with given all of his, you know, his journey, if he can say that with certainty, as he does here, that we are responsible for human flourishing and we can flourish regardless of social circumstances, then that has a lot of weight and I think we should pay attention. Right. So then he kind of discusses the situation in Russia a little bit, right? So he talks about how the people in the West resort to strikes and demonstrations, but in Russia at that time, there weren't elections, there wasn't any way that people could influence the government. So in that sense, they genuinely, they had some reason to feel powerless, right? Um, so then he just is exploring the different ways for the next paragraph after that one. I guess I'm on fourth, fifth, fifth. So he's exploring the different ways in which you could potentially do something, right? Let's say that you perceive this is a problem. You're like, I cannot flourish in this society for whatever reason. The things that are important to me do not seem to be available in this society. He's now going to examine what you give up, right? What you give up and why it might be worth it or not worth it. So he talks about just how scary it is right, to be the only one who's standing up or the only one who's saying something. But then he talks about violence quite a bit in um, sort of violence and how that relates to lies and how those two go hand in hand. So that's a really interesting paragraph. I'm not going to focus on it right now, though. I'm going to skip down to the next paragraph. And this is his solution. And I think this is, this is the most interesting part to me because he's saying that in this culture and in this society in which he lives, he does not think you should, you know, go out and be super vocal and protest. And, you know, he's saying, you know, maybe that's not a bad thing necessarily, but that's not achievable for most people, right? So he says, let us admit it. We have not matured enough to march into the squares and shout the truth out loud or to express aloud what we think. It is not necessary. It's dangerous. And then this is his key argument. Let us refuse to say what we do not think. This is our path, the easiest and most accessible one, which allows for our inherent, well-rooted cowardice. Right? So all he's saying is, right, just don't participate in the lies that you perceive around you. Right? So whatever you think those are, he's encouraging you to just not be a part of it. Not necessarily to make a big deal about your point of view, but just refuse to say anything that you think is a departure from the truth. So he says, our path is not that of giving conscious support to lies about anything at all, right? And once we realize where the perimeters of falsehood are, everyone sees them in his own way, our path is to walk away from this boundary, if we did not paste together the dead bones and scales of an ideology, if we did not sew together rotting rags, we would be astonished how quickly the lies would be rendered helpless and would subside. So this is the choice that he has made and which he encourages others to make. And the thing is, remember, he's saying this on the day before he's exiled for speaking out too loudly. So it's interesting that this is his final word. This is his solution that he leaves behind him. 
And then he has this really great list, right? He says, let us make a choice whether to remain consciously a servant of falsehood. Of course, and then he has this little parenthesis. Um, of course, it is not out of the inclin out of inclination, but to feed one's family that raises one's children, the spirit of lies, right? So he, he acknowledges it is genuinely hard even to make this small decision. He calls it a decision in, tim in our timidity. So, but even that small decision, he's saying, you know, if you have unpopular opinions at work, that will jeopardize your career, right? It's those, it's those little things, those hundreds of tiny reasons that affect us rather than one big reason. But he's saying you can choose to be consciously a servant of falsehood or to shrug off the lies and become an honest man worthy of respect for one's children and contemporaries. And then he has a list of things um, that he encourages everyone not to do, right? It's like a list of do nots. Um, and ba I'm not going to read all of them. You can just look at them yourself. But basically, it's just do not participate in lies for any reason, right? Whether that's to advance at work, whether that is to look good in front of your peers. And he's not saying you have to go out and proclaim, you know, the truth as you see it with loud and blazing banners or whatever. But he's just saying, make, allow no one to force you to say something that you think is untrue. Right, and notice he doesn't, he doesn't even put forth any particular ideology. I think what he's arguing for in this essay is what a lot of us in America today would just call free speech, right? Don't say anything you think is untrue. Do your best to find out what the truth is. And then, you know, you can, you should have the freedom to express those thoughts, but he's not even going that far. So he says, you know, don't write, sign, or print a phrase which distorts the truth. Um, don't cite out of context. That was pretty interesting. Um, don't attend demonstrations or allow yourself to be compelled to attend demonstrations and meetings if they are contrary to your desire. Um, and then he even has this one, do not subscribe to or buy a newspaper or magazine in which information is distorted and primary facts are concealed. All right, so he says just do not participate in things you don't agree with, which doesn't seem like it should be such a crazy statement. But when you think about it in the context of his world, and even in the context of our world, it, yeah, there, there's a lot, there's a lot that we can take from that. Right? And then he, he also says, that, so he's his conclusion, that the list is, I guess, two thirds of the way through the article. So he's a couple paragraphs of conclusion. And, you know, he basically just says, this is even this small choice, right? Just don't do anything you think is untrue and be convicted of your own thoughts. This, he says, will be a difficult choice, right? It says it will not be the same for everybody at first. Some will lose their jobs, but there are no loopholes for anybody who wants to be honest. And then I love this little bit here that he mentions, um... So he talks about the secure, those securely working in the technical sciences, right? So I guess at this point in Russia, which is kind of, I guess in a way similar to what we're experiencing now, um, the sciences were sort of this bastion where they're like, it doesn't matter. We don't have to worry about having free speech or not. We just report the facts. But Solzhenitsyn here is warning the scientists of his day, don't, you know, don't rely too much on that the problems that you see happening, the humanities will very soon be your problems as well. So that's just something to think about. 
And then he uses these two terms, spiritual independence and spiritual servitude, which I think are really interesting terms. So I'm going to unpack those a little bit. Um, he, As he uses them in the rest of this conclusion of the essay, he kind of, he links spiritual independence to that conviction that you should only say things that you think are true, right? To not participate in either things that you think are lies or even things you're not sure about or just things that you are contrary to your inclination, right? He has this strong commitment to a unity and a transparency in your actions and your convictions. And that's what he calls spiritual independence. And spiritual servitude is what he calls the opposite of that. So going along with things, even if you're not sure that they're true or why they're true or any of those things. And so then there's a lot of information packed into these last few passages. So I'm just going to pick out a few things, right? Um, this one is, this paragraph is so, so powerful and so interesting. Uh, I'm just going to read it and not really comment on it. Uh, but he says, he who is not sufficiently courageous to defend his soul, soul in the sense of like the independent spiritual independence that I just mentioned, sorry. Um, don't let him be proud of his progressive views and don't let him boast that he is an academician or a people's artist, or a distinguished figure or a general. Let him say to himself, I am part of the herd and a coward. It's all the same to me as long as I'm fed and kept warm. All right, and then he continues saying, even though this is a small choice, it still may be a courageous one for a lot of people. They still may be really you know, it, it may take a lot for them to make this choice. And he says, this would not be an easy path, but the easiest of all possible ones, right? And then he also, he ends with a note of encouragement saying, you know, this isn't something that I've made up. Other people have done this before me. Other people will hopefully do this after me. Um, but he, and he, he ends with this um, quote from Pushkin, which is delightful. I mean, obviously I'm reading the English translation, but I am assured that it sounds even more beautiful in the original language. Uh, but Pushkin says, What use to the herds are the gifts of freedom, the scourge and a yoke with tinkling bells? This is their heritage, bequeathed to every generation. And so that is how he concludes the essay. And I guess I'm not exactly sure. I did some commentary as we were going through, as I always do, whether or not I tried to do that. Um... I think all I wanted to do in this episode is just to go through that and kind of discuss it and hopefully I'll get some feedback just as relates to human flourishing, what it means to be human and how to do that during a time when for whatever reason the normal avenues of human flourishing seems to be closed off, right? So ordinarily we're able to socialize and go experience art and theater and museums and you know, all of these wonderful things which contribute so much towards our flourishing. You know, even things like, it's just like your basic socializing with other humans, right? That's a big part of what it means to be human, to contextualize yourself within a society. But when we're cut off from a lot of those things, I think it's helpful to look back to other, just to other ways that people have discussed this issue. And I mean, obviously, Solzhenitsyn is writing from a really difficult time in history, difficult time in his own life. But I think it's in those moments where 
things are so so bad and you know we kind of hit rock bottom or a society hits rock bottom that some great souls have this wonderful insight i think that's what's happening here with solzhenitsyn so i hope you enjoyed my chat and let me know if you have any comments